following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.
A little bit, this is how it worked. It was profitable to win battles. Well, it was a, a source of joy, but it was a source of income. Because when you won, when you beat the enemy, you got to take all their stuff. And so this is a good deal. There was incentive there. And not only like their gold or their silver and their jewelry, you also got to take their livestock and their cattle, which is a huge asset. And you got to take the pick of their girls. That's how it worked. Um, the most beautiful virgins and maidens and wives, they didn't care. They would take them all. This is a serious threat that you're being pursued and you know this, you know this is how it works in the age. And you felt that. A terror of all. Being dragged back into slavery or killed at the hands of a brutal enemy. Um, God allowed them to feel that. Right? To feel the impact of the threat against them. Secondly, they were uh, painfully aware of their utter helplessness. They don't sing about that in the song. You know, you know, you should sing about how pathetic we are. And they did, they skipped that part. But if you go back and look at the previous chapter, we see it. Because in chapter 14, when the, the Pharaoh came near with his chariot and his army, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes and, and they saw the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. Why did they fear? Because they didn't have a weapon among them, right? We're going to beat you down with our sheep. <laughs> They were not soldiers. They were not trained to fight. They had no chariots. They had no swords. No, no cannons. No weapons. But they were helpless. And they knew that they were toast if, if the Egyptians caught them. They were helpless. And only that, but they weren't all that confident that God would help them. But they had not a lot of money. Third, uh, so they. You get to say they, they know the threat, they, they sense their own vulnerability and helplessness. Thirdly, uh, as, as God saves them, God saves them with purely incredible power. Remember the story. Moses raises his hand and parts the waters of the Red Sea. As we, we mentioned last week, and it talks about it again this week and in the passage here, over and over again, it uses the word the depths, the deep sea. And like what some people will tell you, they didn't just walk across a marshy swamp. This was a large, deep body of water. Somehow God miraculously, supernaturally, part of the waters of the sea. Uh, and they saw this. And this had to be cool. And this had to, I'd love to see that, right? Um, had to make an impression. But even beyond that, they go through the sea on dry ground. The Jewish army follows them and chasing them through the sea. And they watch as God lets the sea go. And it completely drowned the army of Egypt. Uh, they saw firsthand uh, the impressive power of God. Finally, uh, because of all of that, they, they could experience the amazing relief that it was all over. Right? Um, they knew that life was going to get wiped out. And God rescued and delivered them. Uh, and I, I'm, I'm thinking that no Super Bowl championship could have felt as good as what it felt for them. Right? No World Cup soccer championship could have felt as sweet as what they felt. Because the stakes are so much higher. The reality is tomorrow morning when you watch the Super Bowl, if your team loses or if your team wins, 
The two are not going to make any matter or difference in your life. You don't get a raise. You don't get money, right? You don't get sports endorsements. You go back to the normal life, and really it doesn't affect you. But this affected them. But this was their life. This was being a slave being for being free. Uh, this was life or death. So for them, I think uh, what they experienced must have been just phenomenal. Right? You can just put yourself in those shoes and imagine the joy. So naturally, they have something to sing about. Uh, Moses writes the song because he cannot contain himself. He is so thrilled with joy. One of the cool things about music and poetry in general is it gives us a way or a means to express emotions that words just fail. Uh, it's one of my, my struggles preaching. I get these ideas, I see stuff in scripture, I get so excited I want to say it, and there just aren't enough words. So I get to kind of stumble and bubble and say, There's something about poetry, though, that's powerful. And that is because it uses images and metaphors and sometimes exaggeration to paint pictures that are beyond just the literal. I told them that in the previous chapter, Moses told the facts of the story. And honestly, it's not that emotional. Like you read through it, you tell this kind of like a news reporter. Well, today, a physician army is pursuing his life across the Red Sea. Something weird happened in the old right? They're emotional. But that's what it was. But the music is much more emotionally charged because it uses images and pictures and it puts um, in our mind what our heart wants to express. And of course, because it's Hebrew poetry, because we don't have the music, it won't connect with us like it did with the uh, Israelites in that day. But that's what music does. Music has that impact, and we experience it with our own music. Uh, so they, they write these words, and in your great, the greatness of your majesty, you overthrew your adversaries. You sent out your fury, and it consumes them like stubble. Can't be bad, they didn't really consume them like stubble, that God turned the Egyptians into wheat. No, right? it's, it's word picture. It paints this image of it. It would have been clear in their minds that they saw the ship button, they saw they were burning their fields. And they knew what this said, how quickly a fire was devoured, the wheat stumbled. The water piled up, the flood stood up in a heap. And it's a picture of like a, a heap of hay, or a heap of straw, or a heap of dirt. It's a picture of the image. Was it literal? No, it was figurative, but it, it helps convey the emotion of what they experienced. So the song gives them a channel for their exuberant joy. It gives them a way to express the enthusiasm and joy that they have just experienced through God's salvation. So that's what happens, right? They experience this great salvation and they respond with joyful singing. Uh, I want to just take a short detour for a minute and talk about, well, I mean, actually, about five minutes. <laughs> Talk about why we sing in church. We sing a lot. Every Sunday it happens. Every single Sunday we sing. Who knows? And we usually sing more than one song. In fact, we usually sing more than five songs. And we have a very specific and deliberate and purposeful way that we do this. So what's the point of it all? Um, well, clearly we see here that singing songs with joyful praise 
is a natural and perhaps even a necessary response when we, when we uh, experience God's help and salvation. And so I think it's good that churches today, all over the world, in every culture and every language, and it's been this truth for all its history, that the Christians rightly value praise singing as a priority in the life of the believer. Both as we gather on Sunday mornings and perhaps as we worship God throughout the week. You may sing, or you may listen to praise music. Here's a question. Uh, and you show up on Sunday morning, and you've hopefully been sufficiently copied up so you have a little caffeine flowing that you're awake. And you, uh, you sing. Um, is your singing joy filled? Can you honestly say that as you enter into the song, it's, it's joy filled singing? Or would you have to say that sometimes it's just kind of going through the motions? It's just what you do because, well, that's just what we do on the Sundays. Um, now, I'll say that, let me just say this. So I, I really believe that CCF, our church here, you, you all do some amazing, joyful singing. Amen? Amen. I mean, it's awesome. When I get this kind of, all the time, people who visit, they go, wow, people in your church actually sing like a lot and loud and like enthusiastic right? I, I believe that, and I believe that there's reasons for that, partly because of the priorities we have and who we are, and we'll talk about that. So it's not necessarily a criticism of the view of our church, but when you look at the church in general, and I go to the United States and I visit churches, honestly, I don't see a lot of joyful singing. I do see a lot of loud music, right? Uh, and, uh, and definitely about music, which is fun. I'm all about that, right? I grew up, you know, in the rock era. I can listen to a lot of music and I get a buzz out of that, right? Um, but is that really joyful to me? Well, here's the problem. Of course, the problem is that when we sing praise songs just because we're supposed to, it's not the same as singing because we've experienced something so profound and life-changing that we have to sing about it. There's a huge difference, right? If I show up and I'm just singing a song, blah, 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 it's on the inside. Obviously, it will be lacking. If we don't have an inward joy to drive our praise, it will be lifeless. And so this is what happens, I think, oftentimes in churches. The reason music is loud is because the congregation is dead. And they have this vision that love music will revive them. I remember when I was passing in the States, uh, our worship director, worship leader, or whatever, um, wasn't a band, it's actually a piano, back in the old days, no guitar. Uh, she was an excellent musician, phenomenal musician. And she would be, and she would get so frustrated because people weren't singing with joy. So her solution to the problem is not so much volume, but like speed. Her idea was that it was faster. That would, you know, spike people up, right? Kind of music on caffeine. Um, well, they came across just being really hard to sing with her, right? It was really hard to sing. And I will say that good music does have the capacity to move people. Because of the nature of poetry and because uh, it is engaging when done well, it does engage our soul in this certain way. I do believe that sometimes music can, by its impact, draw us into a worshipful spirit. 
But uh, you can't rely on that. And when it does, what happens is there's tremendous pressure on the music and the musicians and the worship band to create or generate something that they're not really responsible for. It's not how it's supposed to work. And of course, you hear those people complaining, oh, I know the worship service just didn't move me, right? The worship band just didn't serve me. It didn't sing the songs that I like that charge me up and I'm disappointed with worship. I want to put money on it. Um, well, that's not how it's supposed to work. Like, scripture is very clear. This is a great example of how this is supposed to work. Praise is supposed to be our natural response. We have experienced God's help and salvation, and it has fired us up. Right? Because we have joy, we've experienced something real that gives us cause to celebrate. And so we're like a, a volcano bursting with this energy, and music is a way to express upon our heart. Exactly what happens here for the Israelites. And it's really what should happen in our worship on Sunday, in our personal times of devotion with God. Our life should be full of joy because of what we've experienced in our relationship with Christ. And we express that in joyful singing. So, how do we do that? Um, how do we generate that kind of joy in our life? Right? If it's not already there, what do we do to increase our sense of joy? So we have something to sing about. Uh, surely, if we had all gone through the Red Sea and experienced that in the name of the Red Sea, we probably would have lots to sing about. But we may feel like, you know, the Red Sea stuff just doesn't be happening in my life, right? I, I can't remember the last time I saw you know, the ocean park. I've experienced those kind of dramatic things. Our perception is that our life is the life of it, and that perhaps God just doesn't do that kind of stuff anymore. So, um, you know, my life is just boring and plain and ordinary. So that's why I don't have anything to say. And in reality, that is very, that perception is very sad and true. It's sad because that's oftentimes how we think about our life. And true because it's not the reality of our life if we are in Christ. Um, the problem is not that God is not working in us and around us and in our life. The problem is that we fail to see the significance and the extent of what He's doing in us and through us. We fail to see how God is at work crushing an enemy that is a serious threat to us with a power infinitely more greater than anything He did uh, at the Red Sea. The reality is we need a 4D experience, you know, we, uh, we need to be impacted at a 4D level with the message of the gospel. Uh, we need to move the gospel from merely impersonal information from a news report, right, to a deeply personal encounter with Jesus. And that's what it takes. Uh, as long as the truth of the Bible and of the gospel is just information is not going to have much joy. The only thing that happens is when we encounter Jesus in a very real experiential way. I also think that it's important that, that we need to look at the kind of life that's wading into battles that we can't win. And we live our whole life avoiding anything difficult because it's safe and comfortable. We will never experience God do incredible miracles in our life. Right? It's when we plunge into an impossible 
what is at stake is that we are in jeopardy of being in prison forever in that kingdom of darkness. And, and the reality is we are helpless to do anything about it. In our own strength, and our own power, we can't be saved. We can't fix our own problems. We cannot purchase our own forgiveness. And if you don't believe that it's just a simple test. Just say something really mean and offensive to your best friend or to your wife. Something really hurtful. And then you feel really bad about it, because you will. Because it'll make you feel bad, right? And just wait a minute more to make it go away. Can you do that? You can say you're sorry, you can beg forgiveness, you can buy 10,000 roses, but you cannot make those words. You cannot erase those words. We're helpless to fix it. But, but the good news is, and this is what we need to focus on, God has a power and has accomplished a victory. It's unbelievable. Far greater than what he did to us. To Jesus, he has triumphed over his enemy. To Jesus' death on the cross, he has crushed Satan and he has crushed death. He rose again to show that he is victorious over death. So we don't even have to worry about death anymore. Where God can't be, death can't hurt us. It's not a destruction, it's actually an entrance into his So, so we need that. We need this kind of gospel-centered preaching in our life where we enter into that story and we, we, we see the reality of the enemy that wants to destroy us and what God has done to save us. He poured himself into his son and he died in our place. So he celebrated his son with the community. And then, as the word impacts us, and we're moved by the story, we put ourselves in that story, then we respond with praise. And then we turn to music side, we pray, we, we get out the worship CDs, what happens anymore, the worship things like this poem. Crank it up, and you rock and roll, and dance, and sing, and celebrate, God is so we try to do this, uh, how we intentionally arrange our worship service on Sunday. We want the word to come first. Right? That's why we, we, we don't do a lot of singing at the first, we do a lot of singing at the end. Because we want it to be a response. We want you to be moved and served by scripture and then respond to what you've heard in praise. The cool thing here is when you do that, um, cool things happen in your life. I call that the revelation of joyful praise. And again, I don't mean by that the book of Revelation. Just think it's cool. The Genesis of Revelation, the joyful thing of Revelation. Uh, revelation meaning God reveals himself as we praise him joyfully. As we do this well, God shows up and meets us in an incredible, personal, powerful way. And certainly God did that through Israel. Verse 11. And they're praying, as they're celebrating, as they're remembering God's salvation. All of a sudden, Moses says, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness? And here the holiness means totally unique. Nobody 
comparison, nobody who in any way equals you. Who is like you? Awesome and glorious deeds, doing wonders. You stretch out your hand and never saw them. Uh, three things that we should be struck by as we pray. First, is we should be struck by um, God's power. The reality and truth of God's power. Um, because music does give expression to feelings the way that words as we can. As we praise and worship, we should be struck, not, not that we learn something new, but struck with greater emotional impact. And say, well, that is awesome. It is power. He's unlimited. He, he, he has got an infinite power for what he does. Praise should affirm that and give him greater confidence in what God can do. Secondly, we should be, and through praise and worship, it should bring us to be in awe of God's character. Because who is like you are among the gods? Majestic and holiness. He's describing things about God's character. So in the verse 13, you led us in your steadfast love. You, the people you have redeemed, and you have guided them by your strength. Uh, tomorrow after the Super Bowl, whichever team wins, that means that they will, they will pick the MVP, the most valuable player. And, then, and they recognize that victories are cool, but victories are cool because of heroes who perform exceptionally well. We play the game more. Uh, it's hard to celebrate a victory without being aware of the ones who really made it happen. And as we worship, as we look at what God has done, uh, it should start us thinking, wow, why would God do that for me? What kind of God is this that he would rescue me? Who am I? The God who cares so much about me. As we reflect on those as we reflect on those questions, we realize that He is a God of love, incredible love. As you have led us through this steadfast love, the idea there is of a covenant of love. Meaning, like, like in a married relationship, God makes a promise to love us. And His love is based on His promise, not on our goodness. God doesn't look down at us and say, Wow, you're so wonderful. I love you because you're just cheap. No. It's because of His promise to love us no matter what, no matter how much we mess up or sin or how not to be up. He loves us based on His covenant love, His promise to love us. So praise the Lord for celebrating what He's done, standing really in awe of Him. As we get a glimpse of what He is like, we just stand in awe of this God is so amazing. So not like us. So good, so holy, so perfect in his goodness. Finally, uh, it should it should inspire us to be excited or hopeful about our future. Uh, for the Israelites, this was only the first of many, many battles to come. Uh, they got wiped out one enemy, but as they move forward, they got lots more enemies. But for those who said the people have heard, what people? Well, their enemies. The people are down the road. They tremble. Hence, have seen the inhabitants of Philistia. Where they're going. The chiefs of Edom are dismayed. Where they're going. Trembling seizes the leaders of the world. In other words, 
We praise God for what He's done for us already because it's greater faith to face the enemy we're going to face when we leave here tomorrow, next week. Wow, God brought us this far. If he, if he could beat the Egyptians, the greatest army ever, the Philippines should be no problem. Because it's hope, because it's confidence. But more than that, he says in verse 17, you will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place of Lord that you have made for your abode, your house, your home, the sanctuary of Lord that you, that your hands have established. And the Lord will reign forever. And this is the same promise and hope that we have. Uh, we discover that our future is good. If we love and trust and follow Him, this is what God has in plan for us. He led us out of bondage, He led us out of slavery, He delivered us from our enemies by Christ so that He can lead us home. Our home, his home. Uh, most of us here have lived and are living away from home. Have you ever been kind of homesick? Uh, you know, we're crazy. You live here long enough, you have two homes. So no matter where you are, you're always homesick, right? You're here because you're there, you're there because you're here. Um, homesick. We got home, the place where you belong, the place where you're cared for, the land is good. God says, ultimately, I'm doing this to lead you home, to live with me in my presence forever and ever. And it is by saying that, that he is the king who reigns, which means he reigns on that, but we live with him and we reign with him. We participate in his kingdom of life, a life where it is full of joy and memory. We get to practice this today, right? Preach the word. Try to put Jesus out there. And the moment in which you guys are going to come, we're going to get the chance to practice singing with Jesus. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.